Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. Uh, And it's great to see you all here already in the chat and already viewing. So that's fantastic. This is um, the first of a two-part Christmas special uh, that we're doing. So we normally have a bit of a break over Christmas. So this week and next week, we're doing a Christmas special. And uh, then we'll have a brief break over Christmas before we move into season three of Creation Conversations. Three three years we've been doing this now. So uh, it was last year we decided to do them uh, by seasons yearly. So it's been uh, three years we've been doing Creation Conversations now. And it's been very exciting. So um, we've got the whole team with us uh, tonight which is fantastic and we are a truly international team tonight because we've got john Mackay and diane eager and craig hawkins who are in uh, australia we've got glenn wilson who's in the usa sam who is in england and i'm in germany so um we'll have more of an update about that as we go but welcome to our our christmas program everyone well to kick things off and it's great to see you guys in the chat already so hello to all of you doug and Anne and dom and uh, everybody else who's come in to say hello um we're going to kick off with a couple of brief ministry reports because we missed last week for various reasons um but i hope you enjoyed the debate that uh, john had when he took on for evolutionists which was great fun but uh, we're going to do a, a, a brief run of ministry updates uh, and then we'll move into our main topic as we go so we're actually going to start with uh, myself as a ministry report because uh, lots and lots has been happening in the last little while so let me just pull my uh, screen up and uh, it'll uh, it's got some other exciting things to, to share with you so i'll let you get it up on the screen for me there sam um all right last week we were joined by a whole army of volunteers you can see them all there sharing uh, well there's actually a few more than what was here um in the end but a whole army of us uh, enjoying dinner after the event we actually took part of the Oswestry Christmas Parade. Now, Oswestry in the UK and England, right on the border of England and Wales, is where our museum is, our Creation Research Centre facility. And um, we took part in the in the Christmas Parade. It was early in the morning. It was about minus five degrees. It was free freezing cold quite literally but it was great fun to get out and to uh, actually walk around the town it was a couple of miles and we were in costume and we had a great big float and it was just great fun um you can see our uh, our dinosaur costumes there we had uh, anglo-saxon warrior we had saint george who was around there's our float one half looked tropical dinosaurs the other half christmas dinosaurs uh, promoting the creation research center in the museum which the whole upstairs area is going to be open next year so we're looking forward to that uh, with a qr code um system which takes you around and uh, gives you uh, you know uh, on, on a virtual tour of the museum as you go around we had the giant blow up dinosaurs and the dinosaur riders which were a huge hit and uh, there you can see there one of our young volunteers 
pretty good illusion, really. Um, and then in the background, you can just about see St. George, who was keeping an eye on all of the dinosaurs slash dragons, along with his uh, Saxon warrior friend. So it, it was really... It was really appreciated and well-loved by all the people who came to watch. And, of course, we were handing out not only uh, tracts and leaflets, but um, also information about the museum and it being open. Uh, in fact, over on the right-hand side, you can see our Triceratops, who was the greatest of all of them because he would run up and high-five people and declare to them that he was made by Jesus Christ and they should come and see the evidence uh, of God's creation in the museum, which was fabulous. And then you can see uh, the great pink thing, which is uh, Dave the Axolotl. Now, it's interesting because we actually have an axolotl in our museum collection, a real one, right, which is, uh, is fantastic. And uh, he's actually become a bit... Little bit of a local celebrity in the sense that he's almost as well known as our dinosaurs now um just because of uh, how recognizable he is so we we uh, we dressed up poor susie in the axolotl costume and he was he was a huge hit as he went around the uh, the town as well and uh, people could recognize him it was just a great fun time for all of us it was a fun time for everybody really raised awareness as well of the uh, museum so we had a great fun time we had roman soldiers there as well um but after that or it was immediately after that Sarah Ann and I packed our bags for a little brief um, holiday, uh, first sort of a holiday together um, for, for over a year, just a brief little break before Christmas, but we headed over to Germany, where we're in Leipzig. And uh, it's been a little bit of a break, which is where I am now, but uh, being creation research, we, uh, well, I at least couldn't <laughs> resist doing a little bit of research while I was out there. And this kind of stuff seems to just sort of come across you uh, as you travel we actually visited leipzig zoo today now leipzig zoo is uh, i have to say one of the best zoos that i've been in and if not the best zoo that i've ever been to and i've been to a lot of zoos i worked as a zookeeper for several years and uh, it was just absolutely fantastic <clears throat> and they have a whole section which they called godwana land now if you know your sort of geological history or your uh, your sequences you've got this kind of idea that over millions of years you have a one land mass pangaea which breaks up and by the sort of middle jurassic kind of time you have godwana which is where the four major continents you've got north south america africa and uh, australasia are kind of splitting apart now biblical picture we're talking about break up during the latter part of the flood but still what they've done is they've taken this concept because what was really interesting is the uh, original founder of it dr professor um who came from the local university was actually a geologically trained he was at a background in geology and you can really see that the zoo has been designed from the mind of a scientist and not so much from the mind of a businessman which makes it a real joy to kind of go around and see but they've kind of featured this godwana land as a kind of look we're going to build an enormous greenhouse hot house right i mean i'm talking like airplane hanger like you know massive huge great big thing we're going to have massive trees in it we're going to have a platform 120 feet tall which people can climb up to and look at over the jungle canopy we're really basically replicating an entire tropical jungle inside uh, in the middle of germany but we're basing it around this idea of Godwana, right? So you've got your sections where you've got your Australasian creatures, you've got your sections where you've got your South American sections where you've got uh, your African and so on and so forth. It was just 
fabulous, fabulous place. Um, but what was interesting is the entrance way that they took you into, they kind of took you back through sort of some sort of geological history. Now, there was lots and lots of talk of millions of years and so on and so forth, but there's very little talk about evolution. In fact, I, uh, you know, as, as a biological sense, in fact, I was actually quite surprised because as you go through, you know, you go down through the tunnel and there's the volcano and the continent splitting apart. And then they came across a rather interesting um, area. So here you can kind of see inside that big tall tree in the background, by the way, uh, it's a sort of an artificial tree, but that's about 120 foot tall, uh, high up above. So it's a, a huge, great big thing that you can kind of see out over the top of the canopy, beautiful uh, flowers and bromeliads and all sorts of stuff, almost as good as Jurassic Park. But uh, look at what they had in this underground section, um, living fossils. Living fossils are representatives of animal and plant groups that have been existing on Earth for many millions of years. They have hardly changed in appearance in the course of evolution. Today, the majority of living fossils inhabit limited areas and their ancestors were widespread on our planet. What they then went on to do, which I think was one of, I got very, very excited, as <laughs> my wife will tell you, um, they began to show you not only the fossil examples from the local area, because of course we're in Germany, some of the best living fossils in the world come from Germany, from the Metal Formation and the Solnhofen, um, and uh, they had these fossil examples along with the actual living creatures that are alive and well today. Things like these are, ah, these weird looking fish that kind of float in, uh, in, in, in one way. We actually have fossils of, uh, of these in our museum. The lungfish, the Australian lungfish, again, classic living fossil uh, found in the Messel Formation in Germany. Beautiful great big creatures and they had them here being promoted as living fossils. Fascinating stuff. Uh, the spotted gar, which they have garfish in the metal formation as well. And then I was particularly excited to see these guys, um, a whole load of horseshoe crabs. First time I've seen horseshoe crabs in a zoo in an aquarium kind of thing I had to take the selfie with them right beautiful great big creatures really graceful as well and you can just kind of see them uh, moving their way along the floor there uh, and just a, amazing living fossils which of course perhaps most famously come from the Songhofen and we have examples of these and now John has in his collection as well of these beautiful living fossils so it was amazing to see an entire section uh, about living fossils and you could kind of see where this guy's geological background was coming out mixed with his knowledge of animals as well because um well we have long said that living fossils are one of evolution's biggest kept secrets because uh, they really don't show any evidence of evolution at all in fact it doesn't matter how old you want to make the rocks as old as you want to make them whether it's a few thousand years or in the case of the uh, Solnhofen about 155 um, million years or in the case of some of the other Jurassic deposits 175 million years doesn't matter how old you want to make the deposits all you can prove is that for as long as these creatures have been around they've been doing exactly what God told them to do which is reproduce after their own kind 10 times in Genesis chapter 1 it says that God reproduced things according to their kind and to reproduce after their kind and uh, if God says something once you ought to pay attention if God says something 10 times in one relatively short chapter he's really trying to drive a point home so uh, do pay attention to him in particular and don't be surprised when the fossils actually back that up for sure um brief little uh, mention just to bring my report to a close before we go on to Diane and then on to uh, Glenn um, I <laughs> 
a few years back, I started up a blog, but it never really went anywhere because I don't have time to sit down and write blog posts. But what I have done in the last couple of weeks is start a Telegram channel. If you're not familiar with Telegram, it's a, a sort of similar thread to WhatsApp, uh, and there's various different features on it. It's one of the more secure um, messaging services. But what you can also do is create a channel. And so basically, you subscribe to it, and you can see updates from me. You can see uh, prayer requests. You can see where I've been. You can see what I've been doing in the Ministry of Creation Research. So scan the QR code on your screen or go to the link, or you can go to Telegram and download it. It's free to get. And then just uh, search for Joe Hubbard Creation Research or Indiana Joe, and I should come up there. So uh, do go and check that out. Uh, and follow me on my travels and where I'm going and you'll see prayer requests and all sorts on there so you can follow the ministry that God has called us to. So I'm going to leave it there and hand over to uh, Diane now who's got a, a very brief ministry report about the uh, evidence newsletter that has come out. So uh, Diane, over to you. Yes, yes, thanks. That looks like a fascinating place to go. Um, and uh, Good on them for showing the living fossils because living fossils yeah. are uh, a, a big part of the, the museum in the UK. Um, so that's really good that even the um, even the secular scientists uh, recognise the significance of those. It's a pity they haven't put it quite together yet, but uh, we'll uh, <clears throat> we'll pray about that. But anyway, yes, we did send out uh, a newsletter this week. Um, of um, <clears throat> a mix of ministry news and uh, we keep a watching brief on what's being reported out there in the general scientific news. Uh, so if we can just go to my slides. Good. Uh, here are just the, the headlines and then afterwards we'll show you how you can, uh, we've made it easier to sign up to the newsletter so that uh, if you'd uh, like to be on our mailing list, you can sign up to uh, our various news sources. So this was um, this week's newsletter, and uh, our main banner here is this montage of uh, a living bird, an oyster catcher, um, and part of uh, <clears throat> a uh, mural that we have up at Jurassic Ark showing birds and dinosaurs together. And then we have this wonderful pavement that we made at, uh, at Jurassic Ark showing bird footprints and dinosaur footprints uh, together. And that is actually based on real fossil footprints out there in the real world. And uh, one of these was reported this year, or this fairly recently rather. Um, You've heard of early birds. Well, here are some of the earliest birds, according to the evolutionary timetable, in the Southern Hemisphere. And a couple of reports have come in about bird footprints, one in Australia and one in South Africa. And the interesting thing is uh, that uh, the evolutionists are not particularly happy about finding these because they don't fit into the evolutionary timetable, and particularly the ones in South Africa, uh, are supposedly 60 million years before birds are supposed to have evolved. So here we have a problem that's quite common in, uh, in the scientific news in that uh, the real evidence, in other words, what was actually found, does not fit 
with the story that's being told by the evolutionists. And that's one of the reasons that we do report on these things, because we help people to see what was actually discovered and what is the story they're telling about it and how to look at the actual evidence from a biblical point of view so that we don't need to be uh, put off by the evolutionary stories that are being seen. And uh, especially with this report, it was definitely a triumph of evidence versus evolutionary wishful thinking. So do have a look at that. Now, Joseph, you studied in your, um, in your science degree, you studied paleobiology. Well, we've got a report about paleobionics. Ah. In, the, in the newsletter, and paleobionics is a new area of research where engineers are getting together with fossil hunters and they're designing robots based on fossils. Now, fossils, of course, being dead, uh, tend not to move around. So what these engineers have done is that they have studied this particular fossil with the help of some paleontologists and they have designed uh, a robot which moves along the ground uh, according to what the paleontologists say that this particular strange looking creature which is now extinct moved along the ground using this long tail and the interesting thing is uh, it took a lot of clever engineers to actually design this um, using a, a new type of robotics called soft tonics or using soft materials that are flexible rather than, than rigid. It's very clever, actually. But then always in the secular newspapers and in even in the scientific papers, you have to do your little bit of homage to evolution. So there was a comment to say that, well, this will help us to understand both engineering and evolution. Uh, now, there's a bit of a mismatch there because engineering is the very opposite of evolution. So you can read our comments there um, <clears throat> and uh, read about this uh, interesting thing that, that's been designed that was definitely a creation and it didn't evolve. Now, also in the newsletter, we have some reports about our own uh, excavations and, and research. This is something that's been going on at Jurassic Ark where we've been making rock layers, but 2000 in, back in 2011, a few rock layers were made for us by a flood. Uh, much to our frustration, they actually reburied a whole lot of fossils that we had dug up. But anyway, it's turned out to be to our advantage because when we dug through these, uh, this uh, deposit that had been made by the 2011 flood, we found some rock layers very much like the rock layers that we make in our strata machine, and you can uh, read that, and also very much like rock layers that are out in the real world. And in fact, some people who commented about the, the photos that we sent around said, oh, it looks like the Grand Canyon, or it looks like some other uh, rock layer that's out in the real world. So you can see a few photos of those and a bit of background. And we also have news about what people are doing. So you can read a little bit about uh, Joseph and his colleagues' wonderful time in Oswestry, uh, promoting the Creation Museum at a, a community event there and various other things. So we have made it easier to sign up for the newsletter. So if we can go back to uh, Sam or Joe, you've got uh, 
some information on that. Sam's role. Uh, is, is it is it down to me then? All right. Then. It is, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, so uh, just a little bit of an update from me. I've been hard at work making it even easier for you to sign up to the uh, newsletter. So I'll stick something on the screen for you. Um, so we've uh, we've basically consolidated all of our main links and newsletter signups and websites and all, all that jazz uh, into one easy link for you. Um, so all you need to do, get your smartphone out and get that camera app open and scan that QR code, and that will take you uh, to our uh, link in bio page um, where you can get access to all of our lovely links. You can even type in that URL as well into your, uh, into your uh, search bar. It uh, goes to the exact same website. You can do it on a phone or you can do it on your computer. Same website, works in the same exact way. Um, and then uh, basically all you do is you just sign up and you get access to all that lovely news as and when it happens. And if there's something even massively groundbreaking, We'll probably even send out a special newsletter. Um, but I'll uh, put something in the chat for you now. Um, so there you go. Um, and I'll stick that up on screen once again. So just in case you didn't quite get your camera app open for you, you can have a little scan of that. Uh, we'll uh, put that up later on in the show as well. Um, so that's just me. And uh, hopefully uh, we can make it even easier for you to sign up. But we'd love to have you signed up. It keeps you up to date with all things creation research. And it really does help us out. Joe, can I jump in on something you didn't say? Go for it. Um, now, as much as I appreciate uh, you sort of spitting across the channel and arriving in Germany, uh, not very far away, um, and appreciating how big Australia is when you got here and how little Europe is by comparison, but in your in dis description from the museum there, both the British and even the Americans and the Germans have left something out about Gondwana land. And that is where the name comes from. Mm. Now, many of you know I love words and I love to find out their origin. And actually, the one continent that never got mentioned and rarely gets mentioned in the books is India. Having been to India and uh, been just beside the kingdom of the Gons, uh, or Gwans, if you like, to put, say it the right way, and that being a dominant language in the middle north of India, that's where Gondwana land gets its name from. So when you have a look at the logic that's involved, we have some fossil leaves in Australia. Remember I took you to Newcastle and you found some fossil leaves and I hate to say it, you found the first fossil fawns ever recorded there. I should have found them, but you beat me to it. And, and anyway, those fossil leaves with that lovely venation were what was used to compare with the ones in India. And because the first guy doing the research knew about India, British Empire and all that, you know, um, they called it Gwanda, Gondwana land after that portion there. Mostly it just drops out of the literature. So you need to tell the Germans to put it back in and the English and the Americans too, Glenn. So I hope you're listening there. But that's where the word comes from, from a fossil deposit found in India. Uh, and now you find that in the other places. So their logic is if they lived in India, uh, that that is the whole area must have been the same climate, same temperature. Of course, the real observation is they're dead in India, dead in South America, dead in Africa, and dead in Australia. That's the real observation. Back to you, Joe. You ready for mine? Yeah, over to you, Glenn. Go for it. All right, Sam. You can zoom in. I, we all know what these are—Christmas cards. Well, 
it's time to send out our annual Christmas cards. And I'm giving my update ministry report because we're going to do something different. Ruby and I have lived all over and everywhere we go, we make friends. And so we send out Christmas cards to over 120 or more, got to 150 people. So we thought, well, we're not going to send out a letter like we always do, tell them about what we did this past year. Instead, we've created our first Creation Research USA newsletter, and we're sending out the Creation Research newsletter. So this will go to not just all the places we live, but I've been to China many times. I have a lot of students. There'll probably be about 20 people from China that we'll send it into, and it will always point them to Christ. Um, the other thing, Joe, you mentioned the parade. Well, we have a parade here, and we didn't get to be in the parade last week because it was rained out, but <laughs> I'm ready for the parade. <laughs> Looking good. Looking so good. Our parade is tomorrow morning, and uh, we're hoping it's not rained out again. So pray for us about that. We'll pray. We'll be praying. All right. That's all I have for ministry update. Great stuff. All right. Well, uh, as I said, uh, today is the first of two um, Christmas specials, uh, which we'll be doing. Uh, so do join us next week as well. But, uh, John, why don't you kick things off for us for a little brief okay, uh, overview of the kind of stuff we're talking about? First of all, you need me on full screen and then uh, you'll need my slides up a little later. Uh, but let me just uh, put up some books here because last year I produced some books for the Christmas market or the Christmas time. Uh, the first one was Did Noah Take Me on the Ark? It's been very popular because it's done in rhyme. It's got plenty of pictures. Now, I love rhyme. It always gets me on time. Um, so you put this in here to answer the question, uh, did Noah take the crocodiles on the ark, the dinosaurs, the ants? Uh, but the question that generated that book was when I got on Vision Radio. Uh, why did Noah take cockroaches on the ark? Good question. Um, after all, they're messy, aren't they? Well, if anything is, of course, you can learn why they were done because cockroaches aren't messy at all. They're used to clean up all the rubbish in the bush. It's only when we build sewers and septics and things like that that we invite trouble from these well-trained uh, clean-uppers thereafter. No trouble with that book. People have loved it. Kids love it. Get some uh, from a creation research bookshop. Now, Steve Cardno and I, Steve's our artist, we put together a great fun colouring in game book uh, for last Christmas. Um, Dinosaurs, a colouring and puzzle book. That's been incredibly popular. And obviously, it's nice and slender and on cheap paper so the kids can rip it out and throw it away if they like. So a really, really good investment. But the one that puzzled me most, and Glenn, I might get you back on screen shortly because I want to quiz you about a few things. I produced this book, Starboy. Now, Starboy is all about a little boy in Israel whose dad was a farmer. And it occurred to me as I drove home from Jurassic Ark one day that we don't have an answer to the question, was it only the three wise men on the Christmas cards who saw the star? And next week we'll do a whole program on following the star. Or if it was such a bright thing in the sky, wouldn't everybody have seen it? Good question. I'd never thought of that before. I'm sure it was a, a tickle from the Lord that got me going, 
And as we investigated this, all the people in Israel, all the farmers planted their crops according to the stars. So if anything was odd up there, they should have noticed it. And so this is the story of a little boy who asked one more question. There's a new star there. What does it mean? And the whole cartoon comic book Bible story uh, is all about this little boy and his family and how they resolve that issue. What's the star there for? And you know how it ends up? Well, it's exciting, but you'll have to buy a copy to find out. It's a great Christmas message, but that's not the puzzle. The puzzle was that book's been popular in England. It's been popular in Australia, popular in New Zealand, but not popular in the US of A. I sent it for review to one pastor, and his comment was, why are you writing books about Christmas? Christmas is a pagan celebration. In fact, Glenn, if you bring the whole screen up now, please, Sam, so we can see everybody. I've got a couple of questions to ask both Joe and Glenn here. Glenn, I've been to America, and you said you were sending out Christmas cards, and Christmas in America is largely sponsored by Hallmark because they make a fortune out of it. But in reality, over there, you say happy holidays. Now, in England, you say happy Christmas. Now, Glenn, have you got any background on happy holidays? What, why do they do that in America? It's to remove Christ from it. Um, they don't realize the holiday is a holy day. Um, so as a government employee, we went from being able to have Christmas parties to we could have a holiday party. We could not have a Christmas party. Can't have a Christmas tree, any mention of Christ. He's been so this was brought in during your lifetime? Yes, Okay, so you can remember when you did have a happy Christmas party? Oh, yes. Okay, so roughly when would that, that have been? Uh, really the last 20 years. Um, it, so roughly you know, it's you're been growing at, more and more before then, but really the last 20 years we... The rise of the really liberal de Democrats and, and the left wing of yes. all political parties were discriminating against Christianity and hence... You, you and I can understand, say, Ken Ham's museum getting into trouble for promoting Christmas, right? Yes. And and we we do the same. And, and I got into trouble from this pastor, but he went one step further. He said we shouldn't even be celebrating a pagan celebration. So, Joe, you're English, you live mm -hmm. in England, and yet over there you have Christmas big time, right? Oh, yes. So what, what's the difference? Well, holidays has never really caught on it's certainly not holidays are not viewed in the same way as they are in the states in general right your kind of break from work type of thing and um, we have <clears throat> two main holidays christmas and easter um, and christmas is big time everything shuts down for christmas over here mm -hmm. um and also even though we are certainly not a um uh, a a a a Christian nation anymore and and less so than in the states I would say certainly certain part, parts of the states um, what's interesting is that the the tradition and I suppose you could call it the heritage uh, goes back far far stronger and far far longer and so the it is not unusual to see 
um, you know, nativity scenes around. It's not unusual to see uh, by even Bible verses sometimes uh, up on the uh, walls of shops and so on and so forth. And Christmas carols as well, which, let's face it, a uh, vast majority of the older Christmas carols are basically just hymns about Jesus' birth, which uh, have become associated with this time of year. And people will happily sing them. Even out on the streets, we have still have the old carolers, you know, the uh, the, the the old concept of wassailing going around and singing uh, will have the, the carolers that will go around and the brass bands and it's still a, a very regular thing to do in the UK. So I suspect okay. it's more to do with that now, heritage. Can I, can I interrupt you there a moment, Joe? And isn't England famous for uh, a storyteller who wrote a, a, a great story about the ghosts of Christmas past, the ghosts of oh, Christmas yes. present? What's that one called? Dickens, The Christmas Carol. Okay, so you've even got it in your literature yeah. and it exalts the giving of gifts and the, the blessing of, of encouraging goodness. Old Ebenezer Scrooge uh, is sort of thumbs down for most of it, finally sees the light, the ghosts scare the heck out of him. But it's interesting, the overlap of the paganism of ghosts and Christmas mm -hmm. and the social chaos of the, the middle Victorian era. And, 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 and interesting, the old Catholic, with the Christmas carol, it's the old Catholic concept as well, because it's stated that Scrooge finds salvation through the good works that he's now doing. So you yeah. find an interesting kind of uh, not just old pagan connection, but also old sort of Catholic kind of all mixed up with this paganism kind of stuff as well. Okay, so there's two things I want to comment on. Glenn, you made a comment about the word holidays and you referred to holy days and that's where the word comes from. And, of course, Joe, you referred to the old Catholic system and you use Christmas. So just give me a little review if you understand. Where does the word Christ Mass come from? Well, Mass is the old... Um sort of Catholic uh, word for a service. Um, people would claim today, and they, I think it's important that there is a distinction between the old idea of a mass uh, and what in the Catholic sense and what a church service is today, but ultimately to the people of the time, it was a service. It was a church service that you attended and it was the church service dedicated to Christ, but specifically dedicated to celebrating his birth. Um, so it's a effectively a, a, a time of the year, a day, which you have put aside to celebrate the birth of Christ. Okay, now that's good. Now put me back on full screen, please, Sam, because I've got something to share with you all here. Um, I saw Lisa Burge's name pop up there. So thank you, Lisa, because I asked you to do the research on this. Lisa's a young girl who's praying about uh, ministry, so pray with her. And uh, so I, I was talking to her at length yesterday, particularly about a novel I was reading, which is all about the historic Christmas in England. And it was all about, uh, well, let me read you some of the things, Scott, because I asked her, was Christmas ever banned in England? And she's got her research here as a university student, etc. Christmas was banned in England during the mid-17th century. Uh, a ban was entered by the Puritan-led government under Oliver Cromwell. In 1647, the English Parliament passed an ordinance that abolished Christmas. The Puritans viewed Christmas as pagan. That's what that American pastor said to me. It was decadent. They believed it should not be observed at all. In fact, under their laws, here's what you could be fined and put in jail for. Traditional celebrations were prohibited. Having a Christmas dinner. It says shops and churches were ordered, 
ordered in structure by law to remain open on Christmas Day, no matter what day it was. And any businesses or individuals found celebrating Christmas could face penalties. Now, that thought has obviously moved to the more conservative churches in America that reacted so negatively to our Christmas book. And as we move into our celebration of Christmas and what the, the, the real meaning of Christ, um, we need to know some background. I was brought up by a mum who basically hated Oliver Cromwell. Never understood it because we celebrated Christmas big time. It was my job to go and chop the trees down and bring them, put them in the in the in the lounge rooms, cover them up with tinsels, and we didn't have electric lights in those days. But all those beautiful glass balls and celebrate the whole house, and it was big wingding time. And then to find out that there was a so-called Christian leader called Oliver Cromwell who'd absolutely black banned, made it illegal to celebrate Christmas, was a bit of a shock. So my mum, who was a fairly fun-loving person, she did not like Oliver Cromwell. So having been to England a few times, I thought I'd investigate this. But the thing that I asked, and I asked Lisa, so pray for Lisa again, um, I asked Lisa, could she do some investigating? Because I was reading a historical novel at the moment, and it was all about the time when Christopher, sorry, when Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas. And it basically portrayed, uh, I mean, he was a rotter. He was a madman. The opposite of how you view him in, in Christian history, he was a man after the, uh, you know, he wanted a godly England. That's the way he's viewed in many Christian books. But really they were contrasting and comparing the fun they used to have under King Charles compared with the total absence of fun under the roundheads and Oliver Cromwell. Now, there's two things that strike me. As I read the aims of Cromwell, I, I would have to agree with many of them to get a Christian England back. Of course, his followers went to great extreme. There's no doubt about that. But then I looked at King Charles and I looked at the royal court and I looked at how they celebrated Christmas beforehand. And surprise, surprise, up to the middle 1500s, 1600s, you would have to be horrified at how much of England celebrated Christmas with pagan dances, with going round and round and round in your drunkard state, with festivals like you can't believe. There was even the description of a wedding where there were the ladies stripped naked a girl and pushed her into the bedroom in the wedding and the men did the same and then they all hung around in the bedroom waiting. Wow. Now, that's obviously, if you're a Christian, that's not what Christmas should be about at all. So our word Christmas, yes, definitely with Catholic connotations. Our celebration of Christmas, definitely been through that King Charles gaudy, bawdy stuff, been through the extremes of Oliver Cromwell. It's come to America where some churches want to celebrate the purity of Christ's birth. But, of course, it did leave me with a problem. If I'm going to produce a story about Jesus coming to earth and we're going to read it, then we have no other word than Christmas. We, we don't have any other word we can actually use to write a story about that. If you have some, then, then send them along. I'd be really willing to actually um, ch check those out. So what I'm going to do now is do something else that I actually got Lisa to do. And um, perhaps I'll bring up my slides before I do that, because I said my job was to celebrate 
at Christmas time in my family and to go and get the Christmas tree. Now, Joe, before you disappear off screen in a moment, could you come back up there, please, Sam? Bring up the guys. Joe, um, what's your knowledge of the Christmas tree and its background? The, Chris, the Christmas tree, well, well, I'm in the right place for the background of the Christmas tree because I'm in Germany right now, which is where, where it originated from ultimately. Okay, bit of confusion because oftentimes you'll find that people who are trying to dismiss the entirety of Christian uh, of Christmas rather um, because of it being purely a, a pagan uh, of pagan origins will claim that the idea of the winter solstice and the midwinter celebration you would bring greenery in into your house and there is some truth to that but it doesn't actually automatically translate into everything green that you bring in your house um, because the Christmas tree started um, well it became popular in England uh, because of of Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, right, who was German, and he brought along a tradition that was in Germany of bringing a fir tree into your house and lighting candles on it. And you can actually trace that back to a particular man who started it, and that man was Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther was a a very influential figure, slightly controversial figure. Uh, Europe was coming out of about 900 years of darkness, as the uh, sort of Protestants call it, um, bringing out of these kind of Catholic, which was so intertwined with paganism that you couldn't tell what was Christian and what was pagan. And so he said, well, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, we're going to celebrate a time of the year when we celebrate Christ, let's actually make it a bit more about Christ, because his whole purpose was getting rid of decadence, right? In fact, we visited uh, just a couple of days ago the first uh, the second the second uh, protestant church the second reformed church and uh, the first church that martin luther designed and it was designed to be in stark contrast to the decadent orthodox and catholic churches which are adorned with gold and this was just a plain white church with one carving and a plain altar, which Martin Luther said, we don't need an altar anymore because Christ has done the work. Yeah. So we're gonna use this altar as a symbol of Christ's sacrifice to serve the communion out of. And you'll find that's a model which has stayed throughout the majority of, uh, of reformed sort of Anglicanized um, or Lutheran churches. But Martin Luther introduced this idea of, if we're gonna bring greenery in, let's bring a whole tree in uh, because Christ was killed on a tree and let's light candles because Christ is the light of the world. So it doesn't always automatically uh, re relate straight back to paganism. Good. So given my family background, mum was obviously definitely pro-Charles, uh, you know, in terms of the King Charles and the, and the really bright light celebration. My dad came from Scotland and he said to me, well, we hardly celebrated Christmas at all. New Year was the, the celebration we had, um, you know, and so I thought, isn't that interesting? They're different cultural backgrounds, but our programs over this week and next week are trying to get you to a biblical view, a, a Christian view of the whole time when there was a star, when there was wise men, when it was the, the best gift we've ever had, that of Jesus Christ coming as our saviour, who would grow up to die on a cross. Yes, he did hang on a tree, but it wasn't a pretty gaudy one. It was a symbol of shame, a symbol of um, the, the punishment of God up upon sin. But yet it was my job to go and get the tree. 
Now, in those days, there was nothing green about the environment. I would just go down, jump over the railway lines with my brother. We'd take our axes and we'd chop down one of the fir trees. But uh, let's give you a little lesson on trees before we go any further. So, Sam, I'll try and bring up my slides here. I should be on now. Is that correct? You are on. You're ready oh, to go. wonderful. And you'll see a tree in the middle of our symbol there, our logo for Jurassic Ark and creationresearch.net. Great idea, but it's the tree back in the Garden of Eden with, I think that's a dragon, or is that a dinosaur? Either way, it's connected to what was happening in the Garden of Eden. Okay, Aussie native Christmas trees. Here we are at Jurassic Ark a few years ago, and, and most of these trees are what we've got available to chop down well, sorry, it's a bit harder these days. You've got to buy a plastic one from Woolworths or Coles. You get into trouble for chopping the trees down these days. So I grow all my own. Of course, see the size of these? Now, my brother, he would plant one of these trees in a pot. And while you left it in the pot, it stayed usable. He'd put it back outside after Christmas is over. And when he sold that house, I took the tree. And now it's 30 feet high, 10 meters high, no longer usable inside. And so we've got all of these what are called southern pines, not the conifer trees that are usually associated with northern Christmas, but they're southern conifers only found living in the southern hemisphere today. Beautiful trees, though, get to be enormous sizes, and uh, we've got them all through our fossil, our living fossil garden at Jurassic Ark, along with many other plants, all of which are found in our Jurassic rocks. So as Joe mentioned, the living fossils display full marks to the uh, museum there in Germany because basically every creature except those which are extinct is a living fossil. And look, there's one that, um, well, that's about how big my brother's tree got while it was in a pot. I'll keep it in a pot, no room to growth, keep cutting the roots, and these trees remain tiny. It's the secret of bonsai. Now I've taken it outside. It's a humongous tree. Oh, but there's the one that's more like what I would use to collect because it's much smaller, it's much bushier. You can actually drape colored paper and all things over it and put Christmas lights. And, and notice its name, Calitris. There's what it means. Cali, as in beautiful. Tris, as in try, meaning it had a leaf with three whorls on it. Um, beautiful stuff. Of course, they can grow quite big, but since we had to lug it back over a, a kilometre or nearly two-thirds of a mile, we would pick the little ones and then we'd just throw them away afterwards. You see, the amount of carbon in the trees equals the amount of carbon in the ash you get from burning it up. Um, forget all this nonsense about increasing the CO2 in the atmosphere by letting these things just rot softly or burning up. You make a big mess. Now, I'll tell you what, you get the same amount of CO2 regardless. But there's what's interesting. Beautiful three-world leaf, otherwise known as a dryland cypress. Um, well, there's one interesting thing. Since Craig is doing research on Tasmanian coal and that at the moment, um, this tree is found in our coal deposits. You say, so? It's Australian. You've got Australian coal deposits. But the funny thing is, our living fossil garden is not in a swamp. Most of our plants like the oricarias, don't even like their feet wet. And when you have a look at Colitris, it lives in the dry land areas of Australia. That's why they're so easy for me to go out and get. 
and yet you find them in the swamp. So, Craig, as you continue your study in the coal of Tasmania, can I encourage you, check on what plants are in it because most of them don't live in the swamps. Most of them are still here and most of them don't even like getting their feet wet. So you're back to a catastrophic origin of water that plunged over the land and ripped these, well, let's call them Christmas trees up. It's God's present in advance for a world where we would not have as much forest and not have as much beauty, not have as much energy in the wood after Noah's flood as we had before. Um, I'm going to go back to this full screen now. There we are. Okay, great. Now, let me just do just one last section before I'll have to disappear and go and look after my darling wife this morning. As many of you know, she's suffering from dementia, so I have to actually be extra careful. So just pray for strength for me. And uh, this, again, comes from Lisa. So, Lisa, I'm really thrilled with what you did. It's very useful. So let's see if the guys on our team know anything at all about Christmas carols. So bring the whole screen up again, Sam, so I can embarrass them. And and and, and Joe, you do caroling in England, correct? Oh, yes. What is it? Um, walking around from door to door, singing rather badly in my case. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's I had about, that, that about sums it up, yeah. yeah. And do you do caroling in the USA, Glenn? Uh, used to be more popular. I haven't seen it done in years. Um, Actually, it, yes, it it, let me just interrupt you there, Glenn, because in England, don't they tie giving gifts at the doors to caroling? Mm -hmm. They do. Um, people do you use either that? gifts to the carolers or people were shocked one year when we went around giving out gifts while we were singing and gospel tracts as well. But you would find that, yes, historically you would have people bring out, you know, mince pies or punch or, um, you know, traditionally yeah. some kind of alcohol as well. <laughs> so so the scene kind of got worse as the time went on. Yeah, I know. But, Glenn, you've replaced the giving of gifts and the caroling with another festival where people come to your door. What's that called? Oh, they... Halloween. Halloween, that's right. Yes. So when you have a look, there's an interesting transition towards more paganism, and Joe himself knows that this is what's happening in England at the present time. But for both of you or for anybody, does anybody know what the word carol means? Uh, it's a word for someone who works in an office. <laughs> <laughs> That's a name, Sam, not a word. You'd oh, be in never mind. Secretary. Real trouble. Um, okay, just to give no, you... No, it just means song. Yeah, joyful, joyful song, song, isn't it? Well, it doesn't actually mean song. It's come to mean song, but it's related to the old circular dancing that they used to do in ancient Greek. And it's also related to the word like you corral animals. You know, when you see the how the West was won, they would round up their their uh, caravan, their um, wagons at night in a circle and put the animals and people inside. Eventually they would build a fence that was round because that was the simplest and easiest way to make it hold up. And so carol and circle are related. And so the word carol came to be applied to a song that could be sung over and over again, or you'd actually continually add to it. Uh, sometimes they became quiz songs for the kids. So, Diane, there's one song where you need a lot of memory to, to sing a Christmas song. It's, it's associated with the change in calendar. Do you remember the name of that quiz song that you have to remember adding things on? 
Oh, well, the 12 days of Christmas. Yeah. Originally invented as a memory test uh, of, of what, what happens when you get different guests, uh, different gifts. But of course, what most people don't notice is if you add up all the gifts mentioned in every verse, you get 365. One gift per each day of the year. Unbelievably clever the way it's been done. And most of us miss that. But you see, when uh, I got Lisa to look this up, I'll give you some of her report. Um, so when you have a look, um, first page over here, it's got the earliest Christmas carols we've got record of, um, uh, composed in the fourth century, particularly one that's a Latin one called Jesus <clears throat> Refulsit Omnium, which means Jesus light of all the nations. So definitely a biblical theme in the first Christmas carols. And it says the concept of Christmas carols as we know them has changed over the years and developed. It became particularly popular in the 19th century, in which we now have still many of these, Adeste Fidelis, Come All You Faithful, Hark the Herald Angels. What's the next word? Sing. Hark the Herald Angels. Sing. And unfortunately, Charles Wesley got it wrong. Charles Wesley wrote that word, and he was famous for his songs, and that's a very famous Christmas carol, but he actually wrote, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. And it was changed by one of his friends, George Whitfield, into Angels Sing. Um, by the way, Sam, you're modern 21st century computer genius. What's a welkin? Um, it sounds awfully lot like Walkman. That's the closest thing I'm coming to. <laughs> no, um, you're stuck in a, 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 a cultural rut there, Sam. Welkin, by the way, is the old word for heaven. Hark how all the heavens ring, right? So we, we, we last saw that word. If you want to look at it in history, it's written on the Ashes Cricket Cup in 1882, if I remember correctly. And that's a very famous match because C.T. Studd was involved in that match. It's still on the Ashes Cup today, that word welkin. And, of course, we Aussies know this because the Australians thrashed the English. Right, we won that uh, that Ashes Cup, and it's been backwards and forwards ever since. But C.T. Studd, he <clears throat> became a Christian. C.T. Studd was famous because he was unbelievably wealthy, and he knew that if Christ had given up his life as a gift for C.T. Studd, then C.T. Studd would use everything he had at his disposal to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And in our programs, not just today, but any day, that's what creation research is about. It's interesting to find out that colitis is found in coal seams in Australia, even though it, it, it lives in the dry land. But it's more important for you to know and share like C.T. Stud that Jesus, King of glory, the one who made the heavens ring, actually died for C.T. Stud and for you. And he did it on a tree, not one covered with pretty baubles, but one covered with the blood from the nails in his wrists, etc., covered from the ankle blood, covered with the blood from the thorn, crown of thorns on his head. And Charles Wesley wrote, Hark, how all the welkin rings. George Whitfield changed it to Hark, how all the angels sing. What's wrong with that? Anybody know? Yeah, uh, the angels didn't sing, according to the Good. <laughs> Good. You see, as we look through carols, can I encourage you as Christmas comes, and I'll make this my last point for the moment, get your words accurate. 
because if George Whitfield, famous evangelist, a, a man who loved Jesus with all his heart, simply picks words that rhyme and yet they're inaccurate, you will find the angels said. There's no evidence that they sang at all. They said it about the newborn king. They said it to the shepherds on high. They said it. In fact, Joseph, just since we're talking about shepherds here, to finish this off before I leave, when we look at Christmas cards, they're often covered with snow. Doesn't make sense to us Aussies because where I am, we hardly ever see snow. But I grew up with this. Uh, and there are some people who say there's no way the shepherds could have been out in the fields at night because it's snowing in Israel in December. Have you got any comment as our chief at the moment? What did you make? Fire and ice yeah. that deep beyond the climate? That's right, yeah. Well, there's, there's, what, there's what did two... you find out about the Middle Eastern climates as you did things like that? Yeah, well, there's two two things about this. This is, again, another argument to say, oh, there, there's no way that Jesus could have been born on the 25th of December. Um, now, there are lots of arguments both for and against it, but the one thing that you argument you shouldn't use is the argument that, well, it couldn't have been because the shepherds wouldn't have been watching their flocks at night in December. Um, what it shows is, and I'm sorry if this is an argument that you use, but it really comes from an ignorance in history as well as an ignorance in any kind of knowledge of sheep. Um, if, if you look at historically, right, with the climate, um, certainly today it's a rarity to get cold, as in sub-freezing temperatures or snow in Israel today. Um, going back a little bit, right, about the time that the bleak midwinter was written, sort of, uh, you know, 1800s, uh, early 1800s, then uh, yes, it would have got a bit colder in Israel because, of course, the whole world was in the grip of the Little Ice Age. But if you go back to the time of Jesus' birth, right, high to the Roman Empire, basically, um, you'll find that there is a universal uh, climate phenomenon known as the Roman Warm Period. We had a later one known as the Medieval Warm Period, and so you would have not had freezing temperatures mm -hmm. even in the middle of winter. But one thing for sure, I mean, John comes from Scotland, right? I uh, have Scottish ancestry, and I spent many, 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 many years working with Highland sheep. And the one thing you know about Highland sheep is they couldn't care whether it was snowing or not. Why? Because they're sheep. They have a great big woolly coat, right? And uh, they actually prefer to be out on a rocky outcrop on the top of a mountain completely covered in snow uh, than in a nice warm barn. So if your argument comes from, oh, the sheep would have been put away in stables, well, that's actually fairly bad for sheep. Uh, it's only some of our modern breeds which are bred for specific purposes that require, uh, or rather the farmers require them to be inside uh, stables and inside barns and the like. Sheep actually do far better being out in the elements during the winter. Now, if you're going to have sheep out in the elements during the winter, then the reality is you're going to need to have shepherds with them because sheep are money, effectively. It's a form of currency. It's a, um, uh, you know, an entire livelihood. It's a way of making money. So they would have had shepherds out in the fields all year round, including in the middle of December. So if you're going to argue against a... Uh, December birth, and there are some arguments out there, and we could go back and forwards on this all the time, but don't use the sheep argument at all. All right, great stuff. I'm going to have to bid you farewell and God bless, and I'll see you all next week. Over and out. <laughs>
All right. We'll catch you later, John, and thank you for that. Well, we've got one more section to do before we go over to some questions, and that's to Glenn. And, Glenn, you're going to read through some scripture and make a couple of bits of comments. So over to you before we have a break for Q&A. Sounds good. So we talked about uh, Christmas traditions. Uh, certainly, you know, we've had the tree in the past, but one of our main Christmas traditions in our family, because we wanted to make Christ the center of it, um, was we always had a birthday cake and celebrated Jesus's birthday, and we read the scriptures. And that's what I want to do today. I want to read to you what I would have read in our family. We do this at Christmas every year. I'm going to read mostly um, Matthew and Luke uh, chapters 1 and 2. So let's take us a few minutes, but carry on and stick with us. I think you'll see at the end we'll get some more insights out of this. So starting in Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they had come together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now in Luke. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, chapter 2. And it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinus was governor governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into the heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they were made, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now to Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day, days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise man, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the districts 
from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise man. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they were, they are no more. So that's typically what we read at Christmas time. But one thing I never did with my children, which we're going to talk about now, and that is I'm going to try to share my screen with you. So give me just a second. Is is this, and it's something we talked about, you know, at Easter time. But I don't know how many of you caught how many prophecies were fulfilled in just those first two chapters of Luke and Matthew. Um, if you didn't, here's just a few of them. There were actually more than this. Uh, the B Messiah would be born a woman. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Messiah would be heir to King David's throne. The Messiah's throne would be anointed and eternal. He would be called Emmanuel, and he would spend time in Egypt, and his, <laughs> there'd be a massacre after the Messiah's birthplace, and he'd be declared the Son of God, and he'd be called a Nazarene. So that's 10 prophecies from the Old Testament written hundreds of years before Jesus. Well, we talked about this at Easter time. A mathematician, Peter Stoner, in 1963, did the calculations of the probability of a person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. And he found when he did the math was that was one in 10 to the 17th. That is 10 to the 17th power. So how big is that number? Well, this is the state of Texas in America. We think of it as being huge. It's a big state. Um, they say everything's bigger in Texas. Texans like to brag about how big it is and how big everything is. Well, if you look at it compared to Australia, it's not as big as Australia, but it's still pretty big. And if you look at it, um, sorry, Joseph, but UK could fit inside of Texas and have room left over. You can see that on the right side. So what is this number? If you took a silver dollar, which I show the dimensions on it here, you would cover the entire state of Texas over two feet deep with silver coins. You can imagine the probability of a blind person or somebody blindfolded picking up the one and only coin two feet deep over the size of Texas that had a mark on it. Um, that's the probability of just eight. And like I said, those chapters covered more than just eight prophecies and certainly there were over 300 that Jesus fulfilled in all. So with that, I'll stop sharing and we can go back. Uh, Joe is on mute. So on mute. There we go. That's fine. Thank you very much for that there, Glenn. Uh, that was great. Well, it's about time we had a few quick questions before we uh, round up for the evening, which I've got a little uh, presentation just to, to briefly go over. But if you want a, an interesting little connection, right, um, you know, as Glenn was reading through and you had the prophecy uh, about the uh, the coming of King Herod and the slaughter of the uh, of the young children. And it says that uh, Rachel will be weeping for her children. Now, Rachel, of course, is 
uh, Israel slash Jacob's uh, wife, uh, was the mother of two of the tribes of Israel, but is often related throughout scripture as being sort of like the main wife of Israel, the mother of, uh, of the tribes of Israel. And what's interesting is uh, Jacob, of course, had a brother. Uh, he was Esau, and King Herod was a direct descendant of Esau. Ah, interesting, some of the little connections that you can find, right? A descendant of Esau, uh, bringing on uh, issues of <coughs> the descendants uh, of Rachel, the, 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 the daughters and the sons of, uh, of Rachel. It's interesting, some of the, these Bible prophecies and the connections that they can be traced all the way back through genealogy as well, which is what I'm going to touch on a little bit later. But anyway, Sam, over to you for some thank yous and some questions as well. All right. It's my favorite time of the evening to give out some thank yous. So first of all, we've got to give thanks to Doki Doki Bible Club coming in swinging with five US buckaroos, a hippo character applause whilst nodding in approvement saying GG. Ah, I'm not a hippo, so... <laughs> <laughs> have to make do with that. Uh, we've got Douglas Boffy coming in with five British buckaroos, a lemon character, moving his head from left to right with his mouth wide open and red hearts in his eyes. Again, I'm not a lemon. so <laughs> um, Right, okay. So uh, let's do... So This is an interesting question coming in from Shogiwa. Uh, so Shogi asked this question. Question, what idea is different from heavens ringing and angels singing and angels speaking um well let's pull up i might have time to do this um but let's pull up the exact scripture verses give me a second can we come back to this question in a minute while oh, of course absolutely things? we'll do another one um okay ah this one comes in from me. douglas uh he's sent in a donation he gets a question question i've heard it said that the manger would have been a sheep trough in the fields what's the panel's view on this well i, I my initial reaction to that is it's very unlikely that Jesus was born outside um, and put in a, a trough in an open field. Um, as, as humble as the picture was of his birth, um, even the idea of the inn is probably a misinterpretation um, of the word as, as an inn that we sort of uh, picture as a type of motel or something like that. It's most likely um, a mistranslation of a house. Um, so, so he went to a house, but there was no room in that house. He had to be put down where the animals were kept, uh, often in, in those uh, houses of that area of that time. Uh, animals were kept in a sort of enclosure uh, down sort of in and amongst the, um, the, the central part of the house. And so he was likely put down in there and, um, and in, in a manger, in a food trough, in that particular part, that, that's my view of it. Anyway, I could. Yeah. I can. I can. I just quickly say it's probably just a bit of a funny comment, but I could just imagine the reaction of the people's house who they've, you know, Joseph and Mary have just gate crashed. They've had a, 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 a you know, Mary has given birth, blood and things everywhere, and then a bunch of shepherds turn up and they're just like, oh, great, more guests. Oh, what are we going to do? More animals as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 
the um the he the, the the old words of the the greek word which is used for in is a is a mistranslation the the, the word used is kataluma and uh, that's basically just as as craig rightly pointed out a house if you think about it um where why was joseph and mary going to bethlehem it was because of the census why did they have to go to Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, even though they were living in Nazareth for whatever reason. Uh, well, we know whatever the ultimate reason was because that would fulfill the prophecy. Um, but uh, we um, know that Joseph was from uh, Bethlehem, or at least his family was from Bethlehem, is going to have relatives there. And uh, if you've got to travel somewhere because of a census, you're going to go to your relatives first. Um, but then probably so is everybody else related to the relatives as well. So you can kind of get this sense of this overflowing house. And you've got to think again, Middle Eastern um, Israel house 2000 years ago, you're really talking about a mud building, a mud building with a flat top and half of downstairs would be the living quarters and the other half would be your animal quarters because the animals were just as important as people in the sense that they were the most valuable things you often owned. And uh, so you kind of get this picture of, right, if you go and read through um, the, the, um, the, 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 the kind of the, the scriptural, if you like, uh, record of it, uh, you've got no room in the main living part of the house. So you get put in a manger, a feeding trough in the area where the animals are. So, uh, yes, you sort of have your kind of still nativity scene as we've become to know of it, but it's uh, a little bit different from sort of knocking on the inn and then being sent round the back. Um, it's not quite, quite, quite as accurate as we'd like to, uh, as we'd like to think of it. If you want to bring up the other uh, question from Shogiwa there, this idea of heavens ringing, angels singing and angels speaking. If you read what it says in Luke chapter 2, um, which it says here, we're in Luke chapter 2, verse, where are we, 10. So the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Okay, no singing or ringing or anything else up to this point. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Now, there's no record of uh, singing. There is a record of speaking. But if you have a great multitude of these people singing, what are the heavens going to be doing? ringing right it's a uh, it's a picture of the multitude you think about uh, if you go into a you know a, a great big cavern or a cave and just by speaking you can have the echoing going around and it's we use that term today right the heavens ringing uh, or the, the ringing of voices and so on and so forth so it's a picture of great power and uh, all the great noises all of these angels are saying a great heavenly host saying glory to god in the highest heaven peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests so there's a, a comment from me if there's any other comments from the others um do feel free to 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 uh, jump in otherwise we'll go to one last question before we move on it covers it well i would yeah. just add on the previous question you know i Tradition is that it was in a cave is where they were at and there was a barn made out in front. But uh, you go in barns today and they have troughs. So, yes, it's very likely that he was placed in a trough with hay, but 
they would have been inside the barns just like they were outside. There's no, no difference. We feed our animals in a house with a trough, a manger. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Let's have one last question, uh, Sam. All right, then. Well, just to throw a little bit of a wrench in the works, we've got a, got a question on um, Pangea. Uh, this comes in from Dom Zero or Dom O. I do apologize if, I, if that was, I made that uh, wrong. Uh, question, is the pre-flood land most likely Pangaea, Rodinia, or something else? Though personally, I believe Pangaea is. All right, briefly, and then I'll uh, if any others want to comment. Um, so you've got to be, be wary of some of these terms because they are terms which have been implemented, if you like, uh, based on an idea of millions of years worldview it was sort of promoted this idea that over millions of years the continents have split apart from one central landmass. Uh, now I've got no issue with one central landmass. If you read in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter one, day two, God, uh, sorry, day three rather, God gathers the waters together into one place and lets the dry land appear. So you have a picture of one water mass one land mass, and that's that, right? We're also told it uh, in the account of the Noah's flood, uh, the global flood, the global catastrophe, that you have land mass breaking up. We're told at the end, and it's paralleled in Psalm 104, the land rising up, the valley sinking down. We have a kind of a, a picture of vast earth movement. So yes, one land mass in the beginning, which broke up during Noah's flood, probably towards the latter part of Noah's flood, and uh, ended up with the continents, the continental shelf that we have today. And the extent of that continental shelf is purely based on how much uh, water, liquid water, there is on Earth. And um, because locked up in ice, you'd get more continental shelf versus uh, what we kind of see today. Um, so you have all these terms which have been given, everything from Pangaea to Gondwana to Rodinia, uh, they've all been given terms for supposedly the different points of breaking up um, and so you have Pangaea which is your one land mass then the continents begin to split apart in what is supposed to be the middle Jurassic sort of uh, 155 odd million years ago and that's uh, Gondwana and then off and off and off you go. You've got to bear in mind that this breaking up of the continents, if you like, is uh, happening during the year of the flood. And that if you read the history of Earth as a history over millions of years, then you're going to interpret this breakup as happening over millions of years because you're going to assume that the present is the key to the past. Therefore, these are different time periods. So be wary of that. Start with scripture. One land mass, one water mass seems to be the indication matches perfectly with what we see in the real world. A global flood which produces the majority of the fossil record and rips the Earth's continental shelf up. That fits with what we see in geology as well. And then fluctuations of climate over the last sort of four and a half thousand years gives us different um, elements of the continental shelf. So it all starts to kind of fit together. I would add that there's uh, on average worldwide a mile and a half of sedimentary rock on the surface. Hmm. And those cut across the continents that we know as, uh, of today. So these were not local. <laughs> It was massive, and these continents that fit together, the layers that are a mile deep also fit together across those continents. Pretty clear connection that they were connected at one time. 
We have a question on this on the Ask John Mackay site if you want to look up for a, a bit more about it. John's given some background to the whole idea. <coughs> Drift. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on then because uh, we've actually only got a very a very brief amount of time left. So uh, I'm just going to just share a, a few quick slides uh, as a, a sort of a, a kind of a, a summary as to why uh, this all sort of uh, matters. So let me just bring my slides up now. And uh, also to just to point out as well that uh, Sam and I have been working hard in the background along with John and it looks like we will be going ahead with a, a new app program where you'll be able to access all of the creation research uh, media will basically be shutting down creation research live and all of our media including creation conversations and the live streams and everything will be available on here so we do need your help to support this so it's really exciting it's really, really starting to pick up now, which is fantastic. But anyway, uh, okay, question, who is Jesus? Um, this is hopefully just going to, in the next five minutes, there's going to be a whistle-stop fly-through uh, of just kind of round up why is this all actually important, okay? Um, here's a fossil fish. Who wrote about this fish first? And what does it have to do with Christmas? Well, you might be able to recognize it. It is actually a living fossil. Um, this comes from uh, an area in Lebanon, uh, this particular fossil. It's a living fossil of a guitar fish. And the guy who wrote about this first was actually the Bishop Eusebius. How do we know? Well, we have Eusebius's Chronicles. He was the Bishop of Lebanon, and he wrote this in the Chronicle of Eusebius. We have received confirmation, he says, that the flood rose above the highest mountains. In our day, these fossils of fish were discovered high up in Mount Lebanon, thus providing evidence that the old story of the flood is credible. Those who hear this may believe it or not. Okay, this is the Bishop Eusebius in AD 325, so pretty early on in the history of Christianity, and he is writing, look, we have evidence that the Bible is true, that the history of Noah's flood is actually real. Hmm. All right, well, what does that have to do with uh, anything? Well, there's how he wrote it. He wrote it in the Chronicle of Eusebius. You see, he believed that uh, one should not just study the scriptures, but one should study the world that God has created because he stamped his nature into creation. You find this as a, uh, a theme all the way down through uh, the history of Christianity, that a lot of science was actually done by the Christians because they believed you could trust the Bible. And how old did he think creation was? Well, he took the Bible as literal history. We know that from his evidence from the fish. And he believed that the world was 5,611 years old from the creation to the taking of Rome by the Goths, um, not long before he lived. And just by the way, for the record, today's date is what? December the 8th, 2023, or December the 9th if you're in Australia. Um, but according to the Hebrew calendar, it's the 25th of Kislev 5784. Uh, that's not before Christ or after Christ. That is actually the age of the earth. In other words, according to the old Hebrew calendar, the world is still less than 6,000 years old today. Interesting. Okay, but what does the age of the earth actually have to do with Christmas? or the gospel? Well, quite a lot, actually, because it has everything to do with this question here. Who is Jesus Christ? Why does this all matter? Who is Jesus? Well, there's your Bible, right? It's the old and the new what? 
testament. And we've said many times before that testament, as in last will and testament, is a legal document. You see, the Bible is a legal document detailing God's dealings with mankind from beginning to end. And it has a central theme running all the way through it, that central theme being Jesus Christ, prophesied from the beginning to the end, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a legal document. This is God's legal dealings with mankind. And you see, testaments deal with inheritance. You know this because you write your last will and testament. And testaments must be historically accurate, otherwise they're invalid. Because you know for a fact that if great aunt Egna uh, writes and leaves her entire um, inheritance to uh, the dog and cat home, then their family is going to be going through that will with a fine tooth comb, trying to find the slightest little inaccuracy so that the will becomes null and void and it diverts to them. You see, legally, there is a real importance with making sure testaments and inheritances are historically accurate. Um, and then we have another testament, a New Testament, Matthew 26. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's what Jesus said. New Testament? Yes, this is dealing with an inheritance. What's the inheritance? Well, look at what Hebrew says. Where there is a testament, there is also of necessity be the death of the testator. You see, that last will and testament means nothing while you're still alive. Um, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Still valid today. And in Romans, it says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption is another legal term there. You see, our inheritance is that to be heirs with Christ and to be adopted into his family. Um, it's a legal adoption. It's a legal inheritance. But look at the point that the Hebrew writer is making. Um, this all needs to be after the death of the testator. The spirit itself, says Romans, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There's our inheritance. There's our promise. We will be heirs of God, joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ, so that if we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. But there has to be the death of the testator. God has to die. That's who Jesus was. He was God in the flesh. And Jesus' testament concerning family inheritance must be legally and historically accurate. Otherwise, it's invalid. All right, well, what does all of this have to do with the age of the earth? And why do we go on about it so much? Well, there's the uh, history of the world, according to the scriptures. Creation, Adam and Eve, Noah, Tower of Babel, Jesus to us. This is a real history of real people, and they all are related to each other. Um, how do we know? Well, there's the first Adam, and the first Adam sinned, and the last Adam, who's Jesus, is the one who provides that inheritance to us through his death. You see, not only is this a real history of real people, this is a real history of real redemption. What's the real point? There it is there, Ezra chapter 2, verse 60 to 63, one missing link. What does it say? And of the children of the priests, Habaniah, Koz, and Brazilii, 
They sought their register among those who are reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. You see, Ezra is all about the reestablishment of the priesthood, the priesthood that was the mediator between God and man in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament. They were in charge of the sacrifices. They were in charge of those sacrifices that would mediate between God and man. And you see, you had to prove that you were descended from Levi, who was the chief of the priests, the Levites, right? That's what Leviticus is all about. But you see, as Ezra was bringing and establishing the priesthood, these three people sought their register, but they were not found an accurate genealogy. Therefore, they were as polluted and um, put from the priesthood. Do you see how serious God takes accuracy? Do you see how serious God takes historical accuracy and legal accuracy? These three men could not prove that they were who they said they were. In fact, they'd lost their grandfather's birth certificate, essentially, and were as polluted, put out from the priesthood. One missing link was all that it took. What's our connection? You see, Christ is our great high priest. So Christ's family tree is of utmost importance because you can go one step further as well and you find that the Kingsman Redeemer law in Leviticus tells us that only those who can redeem uh, has to be related to you. In other words, Jesus Christ has to be legally and provably related to us in order to be able to redeem us. And we have to be legally and provably related to Christ in order that he can actually redeem us and we can receive our inheritance. And in fact, Christ, if he's going to do that, also has to die in order for the testament to actually come into force. So Jesus has to be provably descended from Adam because only descendants of Adam can be saved. And what you'll find is that's why his family tree is there. That's why the chronology is there in Genesis, that's why the chronology is there in the Kings and Chronicles, that's why the chronology and the genealogy is there in the books of Luke and in the books of Matthew, the Gospels. Um, you see, Christ the priest is related to Christ's family tree, and if Christ is going to be the last Adam, there has to be a first Adam, and the last Adam has to be provably descended from him. You see, Christ is our Redeemer. You see, if you want to argue that there are gaps in the genealogies and the earth is millions of years old, you're, you're actually doing is throwing Christ's credibility as Redeemer into question. So yes, we will continue as creation research to teach a fascinating history, but one that's vitally important if you want to trust in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. And praise the Lord that he's preserved a perfect record of all of this inheritance so that we know exactly who we can actually turn to. Why do chronologies matter? Because Christ must be provably descended from Adam. Um, as it says in Corinthians, if Christ is not risen, if we're not based in fact, then our faith is futile, we're still in our sins. If this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Well, I'm just going to, as a reminder to you, because we're well past time now, so just as a, uh, a reminder to you, I'm just going to pull up whoops, a daisy, uh, um, these last two uh, slides, just so you can see them as a reminder again. If you want to follow what I, Joseph Hubbard, Indiana Joe, has been doing for the past little while, then you can follow me on Telegram. Here we are here. You can use the link or you can use the QR code to go and follow me to get 
updates, uh, especially follow me tomorrow because I'll be heading over to a place called the Carl of Avari and making some film while I'm out there. That's where you get those petrified, permineralized fossil teddy bears and roses and stuff. So it should be interesting. So do go and follow me on Telegram. But anyway, Sam, back to you. All right. Uh, we do you want to do question? I think where are we now? Um, do, 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 do. We're a few minutes over, but yeah, let's have one uh, or two last questions just before All right, we then. close up. Uh, well, we got it. We got to give thanks first to George oh, Bond course, sneaking course. in right at the end with twenty Aussie buckaroos. Oops, sorry, I'm late. Slept in. No worries, Joyce. You're all good. Great <laughs> to see you, mate. Uh, right, we've got a question uh, coming from uh, Gary Gench. Um, a question here. Sam and Joe, you surely know that in winter your farmers put their flocks in sheds. They would die otherwise. Well, they, I would like to address that. One, farmers um, don't have flocks. Um, that's ranchers or shepherds. I just checked out the temperature in Jerusalem. Our area here is about 10 degrees colder than there. We do not put our animals in sheds. Do you think animals can't live outside? Um, we'd have to bring in all the deer and coons and possums. And you know, the animals are, are well equipped by God to make it out there. And uh, the the shepherds in our area do not put theirs out. Mm -hmm. I don't know Jerusalem. haven't been there. I will admit that. But we're colder than they are. Yeah. Well, just, just on that, actually, fairly recently, I was tra I was traveling back from uh, York. I went to go see my parents uh, last week um, and uh, it snowed overnight and we were traveling down and there was tons of snow on the ground. It was very cold. And lo and behold, what did I see? I saw lots and lots of sheep in the fields, yeah. all covered yes. in snow, covered They've in snow and happy. Yes, and love exactly. it. They love the snow. And the dogs that watch them and take care of them, they just lay out in the snow and they're so happy. Yes. Yeah. Now, the sheep survive perfectly well out in the snow um, and they are actually far better out in the elements than they are underneath barns, um, especially yeah. if you have large amounts of sheep accumulated together into one place. It's just a nightmare to try and keep them clean. And so you'll find that there's various laws in this country about against putting them all together in one barn because it's really not good for the sheep at all. Uh, and I live just over the border from Wales and you go up into the mountains this time of year, sheep everywhere. Um, so, yeah, domestic animals, including sheep, can very easily survive outside, uh, even in very much harsher conditions. Um, it's um, Tasmania. Yeah. 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 yeah look, sheep, sheep grazers. We're a big sheep area, actually. Um, mm. Central Highlands, very cold. Mm. Southern yeah. part of the, the world, and um, no one's got barns yeah. that they could be well, shaping. They've got wool on them. Where do you think <laughs> we get wool from? Why do we use it for clothes? Because it's warm. That's why we use it. Anyway, let's have one final question, Sam. Um, I've got a little, little bit of an encouragement for you guys. Just found this from Dom come in. Uh, now that chronology importance is awesome to know. Just going to add that to my apologetics article yeah. real quick. That's that's a real quick whistle stop tour through it. We have mm. a whole sort of two hour program on it. If you look at our chronology of creation, chronology of Christmas, there's programs on our YouTube channel, um, mm. which we just didn't have time to go through today. So there's there's a wealth, a wealth 
of information there. All right. Uh, one final question, Sam. All right. Um, let's do... This is an interesting question. Um, again, com coming from uh, Gary earlier on in the program. It's very unlikely that Christ was born in December. Shepherds can't have sheep in its snow. Oh, we've, we've done the sheep bit. The thing about Christ in December, because there's three different ways of interpreting it, as far as I can recall. So the, 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 the Mormons say it's in mid to late April. Um, there's other people who say it's in sort of September, October time. And then obviously you've got December the 25th, which is sort of the, the celebration. That's where people think Jesus was born anyway. Should we sort of answer that quickly? Well, there's no definitive reason or no definitive evidence that it wasn't the 25th of December. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it was, uh, but for those who say, oh, it's only paganism, or for those who say that there's no way that it could have been, i.e. the sheep argument, there's no evidence that it wasn't in December. Now, there's some lines of evidence, you could argue, which would place it closer to September, October time, uh, to do with, actually more to do with John the Baptist's um, uh, birth, uh, but you're making a very heavy assumption there if you do that. So you seem to have an indication that is certainly in the more um, late autumn or late fall to winter kind of month. That seems to be the, 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 the general area based on the evidence you can glean, but exact dates we don't know. Um, there's no reason to say that it definitely wasn't the 25th of December, so be wary of using that argument, especially the sheep argument, because it just doesn't hold up. Um, but uh, the reality is we don't know. And uh, we clearly weren't supposed to know for sure. Otherwise, it would be very obvious in Scripture. And it doesn't matter. No. The important no. thing is to worship Christ, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. Mm. And died for our sins, every died single one of them. Sins. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a good yeah. point to end on, I think. I think so, indeed, yes. yes. And it's about time that we end. We've got Christmas part two next week, and I'm particularly looking forward to John's section on Follow That Star because that is a really good program. Um, and we haven't done it in about three or four years, so uh, it'll be well worth tuning into that. But thank you all very much for all of you who have joined us today. Just and, quick, uh, just want to quickly just butt in really quickly, just so people, just in case people missed it, uh, you can access our brand new LinkedIn bio link. Uh, if you type in LinkedIn, dot bio forward slash creation research into your browser or you can use your swanky smartphone if you have one um, and scan that qr code it'll take you to a, a page where you can sign up to all of our newsletters to get access to all of our museum uh, web pages uh, our main websites uh, access to our podcast as well remember creation conversations is also available as a podcast uh, and there we go the last little graphic there just to remind you it's on apple podcast google podcast and spotify so if you don't want to watch the the youtube thing or you like to listen again whilst you're driving you can feel free to subscribe on there just search creation conversations mm -hmm. and you're all golden there we go that's me oh and glenn's got his dinosaur on again. oh lovely <laughs> my dinosaur now that's grand thank you very much everybody on that note. someone take that away from glenn honestly <laughs> i'm getting ready for tomorrow praying for no rain getting into character love it all right indeed all right folks goodbye and god bless we'll see you next week